Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Excellent. On this week's pod, a regulatory setback for Hutchman. FDA's PASDER is calling for broad reform of dose-finding studies and single-arm trials following a PI3 kinase blow-up. We'll check in on the latest at FDA. We'll look at an IPO from Hillvax and preview the next BioCentury show, which features Lori Glimcher. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Kendall Square Orchestra's Symphony for Science 2022. The Kendall Square Orchestra is helping improve STEM literacy and education for girls and gender expansive youth with a night of music and storytelling at Symphony Hall on May 23rd. Symphony for Science will benefit the Science Club for Girls, which highlights the critical importance of mentorship and access to STEM education for individuals from underrepresented communities. Tickets are on sale now at bso.org slash events slash symphony for science. Steve, you were up late last night talking to the head of HutchMed. What happened? So HutchMed is based in Shanghai. It also has operations based in uh, New Jersey. The Padufa goal for their drug serafatinib was April 30. HutchMed's CEO told me that they got a CRL for two reasons, one I had expected and one that was a surprise. So I expected that the Shanghai lockdown could make it difficult or impossible for FDA to conduct inspections and times to meet the deadline. That's going to get resolved, hopefully, relatively soon. The unexpected reason is that FDA is not satisfied with China-only data. It's requiring a multi-regional clinical trial. Hutchman told me that FDA had told them two years ago that it's two phase three trials from China, plus a small U.S. bridging study, could be sufficient for approval. And they were surprised by FDA's requirement for multi-regional data. It's hard to know for sure exactly what's going on because FDA doesn't discuss complete response letters, but it looks like Hutchman was kind of caught in the middle of a change in FDA policy. In 2019, the agency had said that China-only data could be acceptable, that was for PD-1s. And now it's saying that with some very few exceptions, it's gonna require clinical trials that reflect the demographics of the US population, even for a rare disease with few therapeutic options like neuroendocrine tumors. I'm hearing, Steve, is from now on, maybe no one should be surprised if FDA is coming to them requiring trials with a US, a population that reflects the US, in this case, they had a bridging study, though, right? And apparently that wasn't enough to make the grade for FDA? Yeah, and, and you remember for the PD-1s, Dr. Pazder had also said that a bridging study wasn't going to be enough. Bridging studies typically are quite small, single arm, open label. They're intended to, to determine whether there's a, a difference in um, safety or a really big dramatic difference in efficacy. Basically, what FDA's position is, is that that's that's not sufficient. So how do drug developers start to think about this? I know that the Hutchmed leadership argues that there's no really good alternative for patients with neuroendocrine tumors. 
which is very different, they say, than the PD-1 scenario that we previously discussed. How should drug developers navigate this? Well, what HutchMed CEO told me is that they view this drug application as an outlier, an exception, and that all of their other programs are aimed at global markets. They're doing global development programs, and um, they don't expect to be caught in a situation again where they have China-only data. I expect that other companies are going to have to make the same choice. I don't think that you're going to see a lot of companies submitting to FDA with China-only data, especially for cancer drugs, because uh, FDA has made it very clear that with the exception, for example, of drugs to treat conditions that are prevalent in China and are quite rare in the United States, with those few exceptions, it's simply not going to accept China-only data for cancer drugs. I think the, the other thing that the Hutchman CEO told me that was interesting is that he expects that other companies in China are going to have difficulties as a result of the pandemic lockdowns. You know, it's pretty much impossible for anyone to travel to or from uh, Shanghai right now. So companies that are there that need to have foreign regulators do inspections are going to have to wait until those restrictions are lifted. And he pointed out that the difficulties for China companies that require inspections for EMA approvals could be even more difficult to overcome than for FDA because FDA has inspection staff based in Beijing. So they just need to wait for restrictions on travel within China to loosen up. EMA doesn't have staff based in China. So anyone coming from Europe to do inspections in Shanghai or any other city in China has to quarantine for two weeks before they can enter the country, which imposes yet another hurdle on getting inspections done. All right, let's stay with FDA. Lauren, uh, last week you spoke with Richard Pazder. He's the director of FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence. And he told you that FDA wants to scale back two rapid clinical development strategies. Why does he want to do this? I think he's wanted to do this for a while, but there was this FDA advisory committee meeting to discuss the PI3 kinase inhibitor class. He said that FDA was also sort of using this as a case study to raise awareness for some of the issues with accelerated drug development that he's been trying to address. So the issue with the PI3 kinase inhibitors was that these were approved, oh, and this is specifically the ones that are hitting the delta isoform, but these were approved based on overall response rates and progression-free survival. We had four of them approved over the past six years, and recently there has been a collection of evidence to suggest that there might be an issue with overall survival. Patients who are treated with these drugs are actually surviving, possibly surviving uh, for a shorter amount of time than, than patients who aren't. And the assumption is that is due to toxicities that were not apparent in the studies that were originally performed, things that accumulate over time. The outcome of that, you know, obviously this was an issue for this one particular drug class. And the outcome is that for PI3 kinase inhibitors, companies need randomized data that looks into overall survival. But then thinking more broadly in oncology, Pazder thinks that, first of all, this could have been potentially avoided if companies got to the right dose from the start. So one of his issues is with the maximum tolerated dose model. That model is based on the assumption that 
efficacy and toxicity rise in parallel. So if you get to the maximum tolerated dose in terms of toxicity, you'll get to the most effective dose that, that you could get for patients. But that's, that's kind of an outdated assumption with targeted therapies and immuno-oncology drugs where efficacy sort of plateaus before toxicity does. So you could use a lower dose to get the same or a similar amount of efficacy. You know, some of those toxicities could have been avoided if a lower dose was used in uh, those approvals. So, so that raises the question that this is what Dr. Pastor thinks is the best way to develop these drugs. And I think there must be a lot of people who would agree with him. The question I have is, does he have the ability to require companies to do that? Because obviously it's going to take more time and more money to do dose ranging studies than it would to just try to um, amp up to the highest dose that you can and get approval and worry about figuring out the optimal doses after approval, if ever. Right. So um, he said this is probably not a popular opinion that he has. And FDA does not have the authority to require that. What they're doing is advocating for these types of studies, the, the dose optimization studies that require expanding different dose arms that you wouldn't have to expand to do the, the maximum tolerated dose. So they have this Project Optimus that's ongoing to try to encourage companies. This is better for patients. In the long term, it could be better for companies. He mentioned that the PI3 kinase inhibitor story, you know, it's, it's not a picture of a successful drug development story. Lots of these are getting withdrawn for different indications and had the right dose been calculated at the beginning, that might not be the situation now. Interesting tension. So when you say he thinks it won't be popular, the reason it won't be popular is that it's going to cost a lot of money, right? Or more money. Sure. I will say also, you know, I recently spoke with the oncology heads at the two big biotech and pharma companies, and their sense really is they want to be able to advance getting products to patients. So there's also a time thing from their perspective that regulatory directions or whatever that prolong this whole process isn't looked at kindly even outside of the money but that said it does make a lot of sense to any pharmacologist to try and get the right dose rather than the maximum dose in cancer that's just been the norm for so long that it would really be quite a paradigm shift i think if people were to change their way of thinking about those phase one trials so the question really is i suppose like you know, how long would, would it take for that kind of initiative to actually ripple through the ecosystem for people actually to change their practice? Yeah, that's a good point. I, <laughs> I don't think we know the answer. All right. Well, let's let's stay with FDA here. Um, some good news, if uh, at least from my perspective, uh, Janet Woodcock is sticking around. Steve, is she going to keep the same role or is she going to take on a new challenge at the agency? So. We don't actually know the details on that. Dr. Califf, in, in testimony to Congress, said that, that Janet Woodcock has agreed to stay on, and he said that she's going to be taking on operational challenges. He didn't specify what kind of operational challenges she's going to be looking at. Last year, when I spoke with her, she discussed a, a number of operational things that she's trying to, uh, to fix at FDA, centralizing IT systems improving financial management and transparency, making review systems and inspections and things like that run more efficiently. 
So I expect that that's what she's going to be focusing on. And I also expect that we'll hear more from her and from Commissioner Califf soon to find out exactly what she's going to be doing at the agency. Now, those remarks came uh, as he was up on the Hill discussing FDA's budget. Were there any priorities he highlighted in particular? Well, it's interesting because he talked about operational issues. He said, you know, look, I've, I've got five minutes to talk to you, my prepared remarks. And some of you may be surprised that I'm going to be talking about issues that seem mundane, like IT systems and personnel. But he said that they're really important for the future of FDA. And those are things that he wants to fix. He wants that to be part of his legacy. Of course, he also talked about uh, pandemic countermeasures and the need to ramp up responses to the opiate abuse epidemic. The other thing that he talked about that really got the headlines at that hearing and also at a subsequent talk that he gave to uh, a group of healthcare reporters is his view about the importance of fighting misinformation and disinformation in the healthcare sphere. He painted a very compelling picture of the problem, you know, everything from reluctance to take COVID vaccines to poor nutrition to any number of other problems that are the result of disinformation and uh, misinformation. What he didn't really do was talk about what the solutions for that might be and what FDA's role could be. He said that FDA is working on a, a plan of action on that. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what he comes up with and how he plans to work with other parts of government and hopefully with other sectors in society to address health misinformation. Now, I know we've been digging into FDA. I want to uh, quickly ask about one thing that I've been watching for a few years, Steve, is this ongoing lawsuit over orphan drugs. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Well, that one's a really, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated story. I'll, I'll try to make it simple. There's two companies. One's called Catalyst Pharmaceuticals. There's another one called Jacobus. They've both developed versions of the same drug to treat a rare disease called Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, LEMS. Catalyst beat Jacobus um, to the approval finish line and got orphan exclusivity. It's charging a very high price for the drug, which Jacobus previously had been giving away for free. FDA gave Jacobus orphan exclusivity just for pediatric patients with LEMS. Catalyst cried foul, said, that FDA was really doing that with the intention of giving physicians an opportunity to prescribe Jacobus's drug uh, off-label as a way of saving money for patients in the healthcare system, and that that was a violation of the orphan drug exclusivity rules. There's been litigation. Both sides have won. Both sides have lost in the courts. And the latest ruling, Catalyst won. An appeals court said to FDA that you can't carve up indications under the orphan exclusivity. Jacobus has appealed it to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, at a uh, congressional hearing last week, the heads of um, Sieber and Cedar, Peter Marks and Patricia Cavazzoni, asked Congress to enact legislation to give them exactly the uh, authority that the court said that the current law doesn't give them. The FDA wants the authority to be able to um, split up orphan indications. Patricia Cavazzoni, the director of CEDAR said that the catalyst decision will send a chill through the development of therapies for rare diseases and will disproportionately affect children if Congress doesn't act. 
All right. Well, FDA has been a lot busier than the IPO market lately, but we do have some news at a time when biotechs are reaching for alternative financing tools, slashing their burn rates. A company called Hillvax has broken through the gloom. They've raised what after the green shoe is exercised will likely be the year's largest IPO to date on NASDAQ at 200 million. We saw a smaller IPO get out last week as well from a company named Belight Bio. We now have had 25 biotechs go public this year. That compares with 44 through this time last year, according to BioCentury's BCIQ database, 14 of the 2021 deals raised north of 200 million. We've only had three this year on NASDAQ. So, Jeff, um, you know, one swallow does not a summer make. Are you going to try and persuade me that the dam has broken? Yeah, I don't think so. Hillvax is is an interesting company. It's the third startup that pairs an asset from Takeda with funding from Frasier. It launched in July to develop a norovirus vaccine candidate outside of Japan. And so they're, they're a single asset play. They have this vaccine that's already been through nine trials. It's quite a different animal than a lot of these preclinical companies that we've seen getting out that some say may have had something to do with this downturn we've been in for biotech financings, call that what you may. The other interesting thing about this company is that it is sort of the final company built by R&D leader and global health advocate Tachi Yamada. He was a Frazier partner who served at the highest levels of leadership among pharma companies and global health nonprofits, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for one. So it's sort of a, a different beast than, than a lot of the other companies out there. So that may have had something to do with them getting out and uh, raising a, a nice chunk of change. Simone, you are hosting the next BioCentury show. Tell us a little bit about it. I am. I will be speaking with Dr. Laurie Glimcher, who is president and CEO of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And she's really one of the leading oncologists in the country and in research. She has her own lab and has spun out companies. She's actually a big advocate for improved access to healthcare. And she's also quite a, a groundbreaker, or at least a glass ceiling breaker. She's the first woman to hold her position at Dana-Farber. And, and before that was the first woman to be Dean of Weill Cornell in New York. So that'll be an interesting conversation. And I you know, hope to dig into some of the, the drivers behind uh, cancer research today and certainly what hospital uh, or academic medical centers are contending with right now. Excellent. And I, I look forward to checking that out. It will be out on Thursday morning, this Thursday morning. Absolutely will. Also right around the corner, BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe Conference. We returned in-person networking for the first time in three years. Very exciting. What better place to do it than Milan? I wish I was going. 
you can go. Uh, record demand. So right now we have a waiting list for the remaining all access passes to attend in person. If you want to attend in person, we encourage you to visit bioequityeurope.com to join the wait list and also review options for digital only participation. We'll have a few podcasts tied to the event, bringing you up to speed on the happenings there. We've got well over 100 companies presenting and some really cool panels for you to check out. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. We're grateful to them for that. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community. If you are in Boston later this month, check out the Symphony for Science. It's a great benefit for STEM, for girls from underrepresented communities. So do check it out. Great music. There'll also be some talks by leading women researchers and executives. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.